Hello and welcome to the Mountain Conversations podcast, the show that celebrates the beautiful planet we call home. Each episode, alongside an expert who is passionate about their subject, we will take you on a journey to get you excited about the topic. This is a show about hope and positivity, and it's my hope that by learning something new each episode about the work of amazing people who dedicate their lives to making a difference, you will be inspired to take action and get involved in the efforts to preserve our beautiful home, planet Earth. I'm Charlie, and this is Mountain Conversations. Welcome to episode five. So far, we've discussed some super interesting topics, and I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who's taken the time to listen and show support to this new project. Today, I am really, really excited to introduce my new guest who is here with me today. He is an amazing wildlife cameraman who you may have seen in his presenting roles on the CBB show, Let's Go for a Walk, and on Channel 4's Scotland, Escape to the Wilderness. Of course, I'm talking about Hamza Yassin. Hi, Hamza. Firstly, Hello. thank you so much for joining me. I know you're oh, super it's a busy. Pleasure. It's I'm a really, pleasure. really, really, really happy to have you chatting here with me. Thank you for having me. Can you introduce the topic we're going to be talking about today? We are going to be talking about Haliatus albacilla, also known to some people as a white-tailed sea eagle and any eagles in general. I absolutely love eagles. Um, Any bird of prey really gets most people excited. But where I live here in the west coast of Scotland, I get to see white-tailed eagles and golden eagles all the time. So I would love to dive down into talking about eagles that sounds amazing but first can we just rewind a little bit and this is this is for me as well I just really want to know what it was that inspired you to sort of get involved on in your in your journey your career journey and what got you so passionate about nature yeah well um I'm going to rewind it back even further to when I was eight when I was eight I was still living in Sudan and my parents came to the UK and I changed from a very hot country, dusty country to the British countryside. <laughs> and oh, my God, was it a change to see all the greenery and everything like that. Um, so I came into the UK and fell in love with all the bird life that you guys have here. But I knew nothing about it. And going from school to school, eventually a topic came up saying, um, Hey, Hamza, how are you doing? Yeah, great, thanks. Uh, what sort of pets do you have at home? And I was like, well, I've got a pet monkey. And uh, people go, excuse me, did you say a pet monkey? And I'm like, yeah, we used to have a pet monkey. Like, what do you guys have? Thinking that everyone has the usual stuff that you'd have in Sudan, pet monkey, a donkey, and all that kind of stuff. It's like, nope, we have cats and dogs. So then immediately I figured out that I'm like quite unique in my upbringing of some of the animals that I was experiencing living in Sudan and right next to the Nile. Um, So from there, I knew that I had this cool thing that most people didn't have, but I still knew nothing about wildlife. So being a young kid, I started watching TV and I got to see two people that I thought were absolutely amazing. And it was Steve Owen, God rest his soul, 
and Sir David Attenborough. Mm-hmm. And I was like, these guys are the bee's knees. I want to be them. And if I can't be them, I'll be the wildlife cameraman that films them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the enthusiasm of Steve Owen. He'd be like, crikey, did you see that? Nearly ripped my arm off. You know, like not the best Australian accent, but, you know, it was kind of amazing to see how enthusiastic he was about an animal that everybody feared. Mm-hmm. Everybody didn't understand it. And he did. He knew that. Yes, they're dangerous, but I know why they're dangerous and I know what makes them tick and what doesn't. So he made it easier for the layman to understand crocodiles. And in turn, people started falling in love with crocodiles a bit more. So for me, it was kind of, that's cool. That's really, really cool. And then on the opposite spectrum, you get the laid back narrated voice of Sir David Attenborough. And it was still the days of when he was presenting in front of camera. So you'd see him with the particular animal uh, or like the one that sticks to mind is when he was rolling around with the gorillas mm-hmm. and, you know, he's delivering this piece to camera and I'm going, this is just amazing. Like this gorilla family accepted him in and you could see all the babies on top of him and grooming his hair. And I'm like, this is what TV's about. How do you get people into nature? just like this person does. And I was like, I want to be him. I want to be something like him. Um, I want to do something like that. So that's kind of where my love of nature started. And then obviously go to school and did the university degree and master's and all that kind of jazz. But before that, you've got to have a love for it. And my love came accidental. It's from what I was brought up to have. And I then took the chance and developed it as my own. I wanted to learn more about the birds. I kept seeing them. I didn't know what they were. There's nothing like what I saw in Africa. I wanted to know. And from there, it really just sparked off. And I was lucky enough to have parents that chucked me out at RSBB reserves (laughs) and kept me out of trouble. Um, And there was the normal phrase, um, you've got to be back before the lights are on on the streets. That was uh, the golden rule for us is be outside as much as you want, stay out of trouble. But when those lights come on, you've got to be home. Um, so I think kids nowadays don't get the chance to do that as often, uh, due to many pressures in life, whether that's safety, whether that's the place that you're living at, the people that are around you. But I feel that kids are missing out on that a little bit, getting a little bit of dirt underneath their fingernails, picking up a tadpole. We don't do that. They're inside. They're super clean. You know, Mm -hmm. they never get a bug. Well, they do, but, um, it's (laughs) different, you know, so that's what I grew up as. And I just wanted to share that love with people um, and then managed to find TV work and become a cameraman and follow my dreams. And here I am now speaking to you. I think it's amazing. I absolutely, I think your story is so inspirational because you just saw something, you it sparked a love and a passion and you just went for it. And I think, I think if more people just had the, the, the guts, I suppose, to just go for what you're passionate about and, you know, yeah. make, make your passion your job. Don't they say make your passion your job and you never Absolutely. work in your life? I, so. I don't. I honestly don't see it as work. Like, okay. yeah, I'm getting paid for it. I'm lucky enough to be getting paid for it. But to me, I would be looking through the binoculars at birds no matter what. I don't care what age I am. If I'm in hospital, I'll be like, put me next to the window. Not because I want to top up my suntan. It's because I want to see what's <laughs> happening outside in the world. So. Yeah. Now I'm lucky enough to be getting paid 
to film those birds that I was already nest recording, catching and ringing and doing all that kind of stuff. And that way you you dive deep into the actual subject, whatever it is. And birds are basically the gateway drug into mother nature. That's the way I see it. So they're the gateway item that helps you fall in love with all the insects, all the mammals, all the crustacean, the fish, the, everything else. For me, it started off with birds. And I think birds are easy for everybody because everyone knows what a robin looks like. Yeah. Most people know what a blackbird looks like. And even if I describe a bird to you, it's the size of a pigeon. It's black and white. It's got a long tail. Most people go, oh yeah, magpie. Yeah. Now you can push it to the extent and say kappa kappa is the Latin name of the magpie. And you know, but okay you don't really need that no. no it's nice to know it if you are interested in that it's good good on you for knowing some of the latin names because it helps you understand which family is on which man family so like the thrushes are all of some form you know like blackbird turdus marula oh great good but it's not to actually show off that this is what it is it's to understand and for like-minded people to figure out oh this is the family group or the genus that we're talking about um so like anybody if i speak to someone who's interested in skateboarding they can tell me the wheel bearings of this skateboard is so cool and they can talk to you and you'd be like i don't know what they're talking about whereas here we can do the same with wildlife and birds but most of the time it's just nice to say oh look blackbird taking food into a nest let's follow it and see where the nest is and how many chicks to me that's just beauty absolute beauty um so yeah it's a it's a cool thing I think birds as you say are definitely I I like the phrase that you said that they're a gateway to sort of the rest of nature because even if you know if I just I've said to you before that I, my bird identification is rubbish. I'm learning. I go out with yeah. my big book. I'm always yeah. Googling like black and white, tiny bird on the coast. And, you know, and it yeah. will come back yeah. with something. And it's as simple yeah. as that. But it's, yeah. I, you know, you go outside and you, you're surrounded by them. You can't, you know, that they're everywhere. Indeed. And I think that's amazing. So I think we need to talk about this eagle. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to know? Exciting. Um, yeah. Well, first off, I, I will admit that I didn't realise we had eagles in the UK because, as I say, my bird identification is shocking. <laughs> yeah. So what can you tell us about the eagle? Oh, <laughs> right. So the white-tailed eagle, it's, I think if I'm not mistaken, it's the fourth largest bird in the world, um, like flying bird. And oh, the fourth largest eagle. Now you got me quizzing it. But I'm sure it's the fourth Fourth largest eagle. I think that's safe to say. Um, These birds are absolutely incredible. Them and the golden eagles. Like, they are two massively different birds. And I will classify the golden eagle as an eagle. And I will classify the white-tailed eagle or the sea eagle as a vulture. Okay. And there's two differences. Golden eagle will happily hunt all day every day, 365 days of the year. But they do come down to scavenge. Whereas the white-tailed eagle likes to scavenge more. And then every now and then when it's hungry and there's not enough food, I'll go out and hunt. So there's a, there's a clear description of what's happening. 
golden eagles like to be shy. They don't want to be known. They try and hide away from you as much as possible. Whereas the whitetail can happily fly over your head, give you a good old ogle. They'll <laughs> look at you and they try and figure out what you're doing. Do you have any fish? No, you don't. Oh, okay, I'll just move on to the next person or the next boat. So that's why you get a lot of images in the West Coast of Scotland of people photographing whitetail eagles coming down and catching a fish because mm-hmm. what they do is they chuck a fish overboard um, and the eagle kind of goes, oh, free food, you know? Right. You can never, ever do that with a golden eagle. You can't chuck a piece of fish or a piece of carcass and you standing there in broad daylight with 20 other people on a boat and then they come down. So there's a clear difference between the two. They're both eagles uh, at the end of the day, but they act completely different. And that's why I kind of say the whitetail's more of a vulture and the golden eagle's more of a hunter. Mm-hmm. So there's a local pair of golden eagles near me that I've nicknamed them the assassin and lady. Mm-hmm. Lady being the big female because she's like the lady of the sky and assassin because the male was bringing in foxes wow. to the eerie. That just shows you like how you've got to be tough enough to kill a fox and fly with it and bring it to the nest. So that to me is like, that is cool. Now I've nicknamed the white tail eagles, Agatha and Lawrence. Now if you compared to the two nicknames of um, lady and assassin and Agatha and Lawrence, <laughs> Agatha and Lawrence sound like two old people who are happy. They want to read the newspaper and check what's on TV and then Dimbling go for about. a, yep. exactly. <laughs> and go for a wee stroll in the middle of the day when it's not raining. Mm-hmm. That, fully describes what a whitetail eagle does, which is sit around, do nothing most of the day, and then go and eat the bit of food that someone's already killed. Golden eagles, on the other hand, they're like, right, what are we having for dinner? What would you like for dinner tonight? Would you like, um, you know, fox, badger, uh, or would you like a bit of seafood so we can go for um, red shank or um, gannets or found gannet skulls near the Erie. And what happens with the golden eagle is they don't like to hunt over water too much. Mm -hmm. So they want to be inland when they hunt because they're high up and they live up in like the crags on the mountains. Very rarely does like red shank and things like that come up to them up at the top. But my particular pair live on the coast and they have a cliff facing uh, sorry, a sea facing cliff. So gannets do fly by every now and then. And what happens is the golden eagle goes, right, that's dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. So they will go and hunt gannets and come back every now and then, or foxes if they go inland a little bit. Um, whereas the white tail eagles, they're chilled and they scavenge stuff like mackerel. You kind of think, where on earth do they get the mackerel from? And then I realized they are chasing, and I managed to film this one year. They wait for the gannets to dive to catch the mackerel from three, four feet underwater, five feet under the water. And then they come back up. And as soon as they come back to the surface and start flying, there's a white tail eagle on their tail, (laughs) harassing them, trying to get the food off them. And then the gannets will cough it up. So I'm kind of going, that's genius. Mm -hmm. That's genius play by the white tail eagle because they're not even hunting. All they've got to do is chase the gannet for a wee while and then get it to cough up its food. Then the other thing they were eating was wrasse. I'm kind of going, okay, wrasse are a type of fish that are found deep, like 200 meters in. And then I'm kind of going, okay, well, what's happening here? So there is a fish farm nearby where they use wrasse 
to go in and they eat the lice off the salmon that are in okay. the cages. Mm. And also, sometimes the otters eat wrasse. So the otters can dive down and get them. Not 200 meters deep, but they can get the ones that are near the surface. So they catch the wrasse and otters are messy eaters. They'll eat half of a fish and they kind of go, yeah, hey, I'm done with this one and then go down to the next one. Therefore, the whitetail is there picking up the scavenged food picking up the pieces of wrasse, flying back to the nest. So I did a full year filming a breeding season of whitetail eagles. And we've got everything from guillemots to razor bills to mackerel, wrasse, uh, gulls, any variety. Whereas a golden eagle will be steady with something. So if yeah. they're near a place that has mountain hares, for example, it will be hares, breakfast, lunch and dinner. Yeah. And with the odd variety of something like a pigeon or a quail or something weird like that. So this is the thing that kind of gets me fascinated to see them hunting. And so we've got them doing some incredible stuff. And I've filmed, there's some shots on, I think it was a one show thing that I did where I've got whitetails hunting or attempting to hunt. And it's just beautiful. That's why I kind of fall in love with them. They're big barn doors as everyone calls them i call them flying kites or mm -hmm. <laughs> flying gliders around the place um and same with the goldies they are wonderful creatures very secretive very lucrative and if you manage to get close to a golden eagle you feel how much power they have they ooze power and i'm sat in a high completely frozen still um i've probably been there for 12 15 hours mm -hmm. it's minus four degrees and lo and behold <laughs> the golden eagle lands in front of me it's probably about nine meters away and i can with my big long lens i can zoom into its eye into its retina and see everything and just the power that they have the confidence even though they're a shy bird, the confidence that they have when they're on the ground, they kind of go, right, I've got to eat this quick and then yeah. go up and sit on the perch again. That's cool to me. Um, so that's why I love goldies and whitetails. Golden eagle sounds like it knows what's what. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they do. Yeah, definitely. So I, I see them as like a lightweight boxer, a featherweight boxer. Okay. So um, if you know anything about boxing, the big bruisers, the heavyweight world champions of the world, except for someone like Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali, they're all slow. They're sluggish. You know, mm -hmm. you can get a fight. All you need to do is connect with one punch and there we go. Fight's over. Whereas a lightweight uh, match, uh, featherweight, they're interesting. They're fast and they're dynamic. And, you know, they can go the whole sets around and you're like that was a cool fight to watch or something along those lines uh, not that i condone fighting but you know that kind of gives you the example that's what a golden eagle's like mm -hmm. they're punchy they're quick they they're on the move they're always on a mission got white tail eagles they're more of like ah all right sun's out let's um let's sunbathe <laughs> for a little bit you know yeah absolutely so when yeah. we're talking about these two incredible species they just sound yeah they uh speechless um yeah. but what are the sort of the population numbers like are, are they are they okay are they declining what's what's going on there well that's interesting because white tail eagles were completely wiped out oh. um in the late 19th century so um 
I think it was 1970s when the first reintroduction happened. So for a good 70 years, I think we were absent of whitetail eagles, if I'm not mistaken. And there's a guy called Roy Dennis who went to the Scandinavian countries and managed to get chicks from there. And he brought them over and released them on the Isle of Rum. And what he did is he went to eagle nests that had three chicks or two chicks, and he took one away, which people go, oh, well, that's mean. And you took a baby from its mum. But in reality, what he did is he helped the mum raise one less mouth to feed. Mm -hmm. So one less chick, which gave the other chick an actual chance, a fighting chance to get all the food to itself or the other two chicks. And then he took this one to the UK and managed to feed it, raise it up. So gave it a good chance as well um, and released them on the Isle of Rum. And since the 1970s, they've spread far and wide. And with two more reintroduction projects, the latest one is in the Isle of Wight. Um, and they're growing from strength to strength. They're growing. Um, now, there's always the case of the golden eagles decline from poaching and things like that. Um, and that's a tough subject to try and cover because you've got to cover it from every angle that's possible. But all in all, both eagles are doing well in some parts. Some parts they're not. Some parts they are. There's lots of persecution in the middle of Scotland, like in the Cairngorms and places around that. Um, but in some places like the west coast of Scotland, there isn't. And the numbers are growing quite well. So I think there's something like 24 pairs of whitetail eagles on the Isle of Mull. Mm. And of a similar number of golden eagles as well. So you can roughly say there's 40 pairs of eagles on the Isle of Rum. Oh, sorry, on the Isle of Mull. And that's why they call it Eagle Island. And everyone goes, if you want to see a white-tailed eagle or a golden eagle, go to Mull. That's where they'll be. And that's kind of a good thing. But in reality, eagles used to spread all over this country, from the tops of mountains in Scotland to the Yorkshire Moors, all the way down to, you know, Kent and all these kind of areas. Yeah. Now, over time with deforestation and habitat loss and persecution and everything else, there's hardly any eagles in England. Um, and you do get the odd one or two sightings in the northern England where they cross the border and they come down and slowly with the reintroduction in the Isle of Wight, people are beginning to see white-tailed eagles again. But in reality, all of the lake districts should have had golden eagles, eeries somewhere. But, you know, humans are causing a lot of destruction in this earth and we're causing the demise of top predators, whether that's sharks in the sea, eagles in the sky or anything else that you can name. We're probably somehow affecting it. Um, so for me, it's kind of nice to see the the bounce back um, and I think it all starts from education and explaining what really happens. And I know some people can say, well, you know, there's an adverse problem by having more eagles means there's less um, birds, for example, or less food to go around. But 
I honestly believe that eventually they will reach a carrying capacity. Mm-hmm. Eagles will start regulating themselves by how much food is around. So if there's a year or two years of good food, then eagle numbers potentially might increase by three or four percent. Or if there isn't, they will come back down again. Because at the end of the day, you can't have, for example, a hundred breeding pairs of eagles on the Isle of Mole. There's just physically isn't the nesting space yeah. or the territory or the food. So eventually they will reach a carrying capacity. And I believe in my own opinion, that mole has already reached that carrying capacity. All of the chicks that are on mole are actually spreading further afield and they're going to different areas or they're replacing older birds that have passed away. So that's already happened in the Isle of Mole. What needs to happen is for that to go throughout the rest of the UK, which Mm -hmm. means we're going to have way more eagles, but there's going to be a balance. Eagles will keep, for example, hair numbers down instead of going around shooting hairs and saying there's too many hairs eagles will keep the hair numbers down but as hair numbers decrease eagles will find less food and if you're solely dependent on hairs then some of their chicks might not make it and that sounds harsh but in reality that's natural selection that's mother nature doing its best if your parents can't provide for you as the chick then guess what you're not going to make it Mm-hmm. Your siblings in previous years have made it or in years to come will hopefully make it. But in this particular year, it's not for you. And it sounds harsh, but that's Mother Nature. That's what we need mm-hmm. to eventually get to is let Mother Nature reclaim the place back. And granted, we need to make a living out of it. And, you know, if you're a farmer or if you work the land, if you're a forestry person, we need to make a living out of this. And I'm not saying just you know put your hands up and let mother nature take over which would be a nice thing to do i'm saying we need to kind of encourage it back and yeah give it a helping hand yep nature balances itself doesn't it so we need to let that happen so i'm i'm completely sold on these eagles i think they sound (laughs) absolutely incredible if we wanted to spot one you said mole is the best place for that yeah how do you spot an eagle how do you Uh, i'll tell you what (laughs) My way of saying to people, um, if you don't see a white tail eagle, you need to go to Specsavers okay. <laughs> because white tail eagles will show themselves. And people say, oh, I think it might have been a golden eagle or a white tail eagle. And I'm kind of going, OK, um, what did you think? Well, I think it might be a white tail. I'm like, OK, no, no, I, I promise you it probably wasn't a white tail eagle because once you see a white tail eagle, it's not like you're going to go, oh, Okay, yeah, I can see where I did wrong there. You know, like a golden eagle can be mistaken for a buzzard, nicknamed tourist eagle, uh, because <laughs> tourists sometimes pick up buzzards and go to go. I saw an eagle, <laughs> and like, okay, I don't want to break the bad news to them, but if they're happy, I let them be. I'm like, good on you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but go to mole. Golden eagles are going to be hard to find but you will see them. And especially if you're doing a tour company, if you're with a tour company or a tour guide, uh, there's a great guy on there called Ewan Miles um, who does Nature Scotland. Um, And he can show you some incredible stuff. So I would say go with a tour guide who already knows the area and can take you to a place where eagles hang out. Um, 
go with someone like you and Miles, who's a good friend of mine, um, and he can easily show you golden eagles and white tail eagles, and hopefully within the same day. And it all depends on weather and time of year and stuff. But Mole is a very, very good example of a place that has changed and made itself more viable to tourists, mm-hmm. shall we say. Um I think last year, Mull brought in 5.5 million pounds worth of revenue just from tourists, just from people wanting to see the Eagles. Um, And that's a place that's, you know, good. You can go to the Cairngorms and potentially see a a golden eagle. Um, You can go to the West Coast, sorry, you can go to the East Coast and see uh, a white-tailed eagle. But the reality or... The, the chances are very difficult. If you don't know what to look for or where to look for, more yeah. importantly, it's going to be difficult. So I would say go to Mull, ask around, and you can easily, within a day, at least pick up one of those two birds, whether that's a white-tailed eagle or a golden eagle. Wow. Well, I might have to get booked onto one of those tours. I've got several yeah. trips to Scotland planned this year. So, uh, Good. yeah, Good. definitely. It's definitely on my list. <laughs> Good. Um, so when we're talking about sort of, birding in general and sort of bird identification and birds watching and I love it I I claim to know nothing Mm. about birds but I still Mm. enjoy it and I think I think people are sort of maybe put off sometimes by a lack of knowledge Mm -hmm. so how would you encourage people to sort of just get out there and just enjoy nature as you said you don't have to know all the latin names for them you just have to just get passionate how would you how would you make that accessible to people Uh, look the easiest way to see it is i don't know everything i guarantee you sir david attenborough doesn't know everything we're all learning so some people are pretty far up the learning ladder and they know most things some people are experts in that particular field but we're all learning and for me the day that i stop learning is the day that i give up like Mm -hmm. now i'm done i should find a new subject or something you know what I mean is I think it's the day I stop living is the day I stop learning it's it's a very good question because I think you just need to get out there and enjoy it if you enjoy it you want to learn more about it and if you want to learn more about it consequently you learn more and you develop you know a little nuances or new phrases and you kind of go oh that's cool and it's the same as someone getting into hair and makeup for example at first you don't know what to do with an eyeliner or a mascara or a blusher or any of that but over time you kind of go no I know what a mascara is yeah I saw a YouTube video and I think I can give it a go right same as bricklaying you can say I want to be a bricklayer I think bricks are the best things since sliced bread but I don't know what cement to sand mixture or what to mix up and how thick do I need it and how level are the bricks in? but you learn you give it a go and you learn and hopefully have a mentor that can teach you and it's it's a nice thing to have now you might not have anyone to teach you about birds but there's always google youtube spring watch autumn watch all these kind of amazing programs and from there you see how people are talking about it how they're describing it and you start picking up a few things and that's where your love starts and if you're passionate, if you're open-minded about something, you'll enjoy it more and more. So I honestly think you don't need to know everything about the animals, but, you know, if you're interested, 
do a bit of research, read a mm-hmm. book. Um, yeah. There's lots of great books. Now, when it comes to reading, I am the biggest dyslexic person you'll ever <laughs> see. And I don't read, but I look at pictures. I get all these magazines and I sit there and I flick through. And But now there's apps where you can point towards the scripture and it highlights it all and then starts reading it reading it back to you so for me i've begun to read again but by an app um so that's the beauty of it if if you are interested find groups find like-minded people that are doing something because i can guarantee you they will know something that you didn't know and i love going to bird groups because you know i think oh yeah i know most things about most birds and oh that's great and one of my friends who i got into birding uh milo's name is and he taught me about a gannet skull so i came into him going no 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 look at this skull i think it's a heron he goes no that's a gannet i'm like what do you know milo i taught you everything you know about birds right (laughs) And lo and behold, he comes back. He goes, no, well, I think, I, you know, I think it's this. And if you look at that and there's no vent hole for the nose and the nostril, I'm kind of going, what? He goes, well, do you know, and I'm kind of going, hang on a minute. Mm-hmm. I think he might be right, you know. And I am happy. To, at first, I was being slightly, you know, cocky, going, ha, you don't know. I know better than you. And then all of a sudden, as soon as one or two things clicked, and I'm kind of going, I think he might be onto something here. And then lo and behold, I become the student, he becomes the teacher and he's teaching me about it. And I actually felt really happy. I felt like I'm humbled to have someone who I was telling him, did you see that? That's a red throated diver. And you see that? I I thought I looked cool at the time. And to some degree, you're kind of cool if you can spot stuff from miles away. But he's telling me about the nuances and of something that I misidentified. And that's the thing that I love about birding or wildlife in general. You're always learning new things. Here's me thinking, I'm a goody two shoes. I know it all. No, I didn't. Someone <laughs> who I who I got in, got interested into birds is teaching me new things, and that's what I love about birding, really. Yeah, I think that's amazing, and I think I think I don't know if it's fair to say that now more than ever. The, mm. the learning resources are so much more accessible with the internet and with with all the the tv I mean I've just you know we've just finished winter watch and mm. I learned so much from that you know I the, the jack snipe I think that one was a, a big a big favorite for everyone wasn't it and yeah. I've never heard yeah. of jack snipe but now yeah. I've gone away I've learned about them and I, I just think yeah it's it's those little moments that make you go oh that's exciting yes the other Absolutely. week I, the other day sorry I um I went down to a local coastal park um nature reserve um over on Anglesey and I just sat in the middle of the the forest floor and I was just surrounded by there was blackbirds robins there was loads of I think there were great tits Uh I think loads of them I've never seen so many they were all just they're all around and it was just it was just so beautiful I didn't know anything about them but that's okay and yeah, I think people absolutely. are put off because they think, oh, I don't know anything about it. Yeah, it, that's okay. Just being surrounded by it and feeling excited by it is absolutely what's important. Yeah, like I, I can, I can tell most birds by their sound, but every now and then I'll get like a. I'm kind of go, yeah, I got no clue. I've not got a Scooby. Like, and in that case, what I will try and do is look at the environment and try and guess what mm-hmm. it is if i'm in a field an open field in a moorland somewhere 
It looked like a blackbird. It could be a ring oozle. I don't know. I, I took a guess. I don't hear ring oozles often, right? If I didn't see it, that is. And it kind of got a glimpse of it or something along those lines. But majority of the time, it's okay not to know. And in fact, that's the interesting thing because it makes me want to do like um, a detective work and kind of go, well, I know roughly what it sounded like. And it looked like a pigeon, but it had really long legs and the beak was too small. All right, fine. Let's Google that and see what on earth comes up you know mm-hmm. and you can get a variety of things and i'm just making that up but you know you can have that fun of learning again and it's all about learning you never stop learning and if you don't know something that's okay because it yeah. gives you the the opportunity to ask someone who does know well i think it's so exciting i mean i love that i love uh, when i first moved to wales i mentioned the tiny black and white bird um mm. earlier and it was um i i was sat by a lake in snowdonia and there was these little tiny there were tiny little things black and white hopping around and i was thinking i've never seen that i've never seen that Grey so I wags. Just, well i googled it and yeah. it came back and it was a was it a pied wagtail pied wagtail pied okay pied wagtail. yeah so and, here's and now, me Go on, go on. Go now on. I see them all over the place and I'm like, yeah. oh, oh, there's a pied wagtail. Pied wagtail. <laughs> and pied it's wagtail. really exciting. Yeah. So th- with that, if like I, I went to its cousin, which is the grey wagtail, and I should have said pied wagtail really because grey's got a little bit of yellow on it and it should be called the yellow wagtail, but there's already something that's called the yellow wagtail that's completely yellow. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a variety of things. But you saying black and white and now it's called a pied wagtail. Therefore, next time you hear another bird called a pied kingfisher, you will then know that that kingfisher is black and white. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's the beauty of learning. And if you're learning Latin names, not that I think it's important, but if you're learning similarities and things that are similar, you will then deduce pied kingfisher okay well i think i know what kingfisher looks like yeah. but i've never seen a pied one i guarantee you it's going to be black and white like the pied wagtail so i'm glad you know that and now that you've done your own research that will never go away it's no. kind of like riding a bike do you know what i mean once you know how to ride a bike you're never going to forget it really same mm-hmm. with once you do your own research and absolutely and it's it's with my i've got obviously two kids they're six and five and they are super super passionate about um nature because I think it's because I've always exposed them to nature and I know we're we're lucky enough to live sort of sandwiched between the coast and these incredible mountains in Snowdonia I imagine it's the same where you are you've got the coast you've got the mountains the landscape is just it's made for being excited and being immersed in nature but what about people that don't live you know, that don't live in these areas, in urban areas. I know your CBeebies program, um, Let's Go for a Walk, um, mm. takes children on walks around sort of urban areas and teaching them how to get involved with nature and how to spot nature. But yeah. how how would you say for, for people who, not necessarily just children, but for anyone who lives in these urban areas, how mm. can they sort of immerse themselves in nature? Well, my thing would be is there is more wildlife probably in a city and more of a variety than there is in the countryside because if you live in the countryside and you're just near a coast and you've got nothing else guess what all you'll see is coastal birds or coastal wildlife (laughs) now if you're in the countryside and you're up in the moorlands for example it will be exactly the same all you're going to see is pheasants and hares and rabbits potentially right but In the city, 
the beauty about the city or the urban uh, concrete jungle, as I call it, um, is everything understands what humans are. And there are, they are somewhat happy to be near humans. So therefore, you don't need binoculars to see them. Yeah. You don't need a hide. You don't need to sit and wait for long periods. Like urban foxes are readily found in most big cities in this country and you can feed them or you can go to a place where you see them a lot and sometimes you just stumble upon them so i don't think being in the countryside or being in the city has like a big difference like you're lucky to be in the countryside no you're only probably lucky to be in the countryside because the air is fresher and you might have a better view but in reality wildlife in the city is probably some of the best places to look for wildlife just because the wildlife is a lot closer and you don't have to go far and there's so many trains and buses and public transport that you can take so if you're saying that you don't drive fine public transport if you're saying i like wheelchair access i guarantee it will probably be easier in the city than it is in the countryside so there is so much going for people in the city. For example, I have been a wildlife lover basically ever since I was born. I've been a wildlife cameraman for the last 10, 12 years. I've never seen a kingfisher. And every single person of my friend who has seen a kingfisher says to me, oh, I was walking down this canal and lo and behold, I see a kingfisher. I was just going to the local pond and I see a kingfisher mm -hmm. and I was just going to the local park and I see, and I'm kind of going, right, stop teasing me now. Just because I live in the countryside and I don't get to see <laughs> kingfishers. Yeah. Also the fastest bird on the world, the peregrine falcon, where, where's the biggest chance to see them is in the city. You can look up at any skyscraper. You can go to the middle of London, the hustle and bustle of London and see a peregrine falcon. So that just shows you that, the city, just because you live in the city doesn't mean, oh, I'm not going to see any wildlife. Far from it. You're going to see more wildlife than I am. Now, it will be varied. You're not going to see a golden eagle in the middle of the city. Fine. You're potentially not going to see red shanks in the middle of the city. Fine. But you are going to see cormorants in the middle of the city. You are going to see peregrines. You are going to see foxes. You are going to see hedgehogs. You are going to see a lot of these kind of animals that get people interested, get people started and fall in love with nature. Yeah. Um, so to me, there's no excuse. I want to find someone that says I live in the middle of an oil rig out in the middle of the Atlantic. What I would say to them, I guarantee you there'll be birds in the middle of the night because mm -hmm. what they'll do is they'll be migrating from, you know, Scandinavia to us and, they'll see the lights of the oil rig and lo and behold, they come and land in the oil rig, take a breather and then move on. So there's, there's wildlife everywhere. Yeah. Um, and all you've got to do is open your eyes, look up, look down and use your senses. And in my program, let's go for a walk. I try and get the kids to use all their senses as much as possible. The one that we probably use the least is taste because, mm -hmm. you know, um, you kind of got to wash things and, you know, you just can't use your taste. You but can't lick a bird. You can't lick a bird, for example. <laughs> very, very good one. Um, but use all your senses. Try and hear, try and touch, try and see, uh, try and feel. You know, like, yeah, it's a, it's a great way to get kids involved. Your normal commute 
to school or to work becomes way more interesting as soon as you open up their senses. Um, and I think kids are our future. They are the ones who are going to take on the baton. And I always say this, Steve Owen, Sir David Attenborough, Chris Packham, Yola Williams, they're the ones who got me interested in Mother Nature and falling in love with it and pursuing a career out of Mother Nature. Now I need to be able to give that baton on to some kids who are a little bit lower. Just get that spark lit. And as soon as you light that spark, it becomes into a little flame and the flame becomes into a fire and the fire becomes incredible and they start falling in love with mother nature and at the end of the day they make this world a better place there is nothing wrong with falling in love with mother nature um with the world around you because the only thing it's going to do is make you more aware of the problems that we are causing as the human race Mm -hmm. and the human race is not different races there is no five or six different races it is one race no matter what color you are no matter what sexual orientation you are we are the human race and we're the only race in the world that are making a mess of this place um so for me what's better than getting a kid involved and for them to start falling in love with something that's around all of us really Absolutely. And I think I'm just, again, thinking back to my own children, when I see their excitement, when they, I know the other day, we, me and my mum were in the car chatting, the kids mm. obviously in the back, and uh, Jack, my eldest, is going, mommy, mommy, look, look. And we're like, what, Jack, what? And he's like, yeah. a deer. And I'm yeah. like, that's amazing. A deer. That was his reaction to it. Yeah. And, you know, like my little one loves everything. He loves every every animal, every plant. He's excited by everything. Rocks. Yeah. He wants to be a geologist. He wants to save the world. He's got all these nice. incredible ambitions. But he looks out of our window and obviously we're by the sea. The, yeah. You know, one of the only birds we get here is herring gulls, like, you know, yeah. abundance of them. But I'm he's glad so that you excited. said herring gulls as well, not seagull. <laughs> yes, yes. A, a recent fact that I learned, so I'm trying to tell everybody. Um, but every time he sees a herring gull, he's so excited. And the, we've obviously had the young ones recently. He started mm. to learn how to identify sort of the juveniles and the adults. And he's so excited about it. And when he sees someone, you know, pick herring girls are really demonized aren't they in, in yes. towns and stuff so when he sees yeah. someone sort of kicking one away or something he will now Shooting actually them. he has the confidence to tell them and say how dare you and yeah i think that's what we need and i think if we could harness the excitement and the energy of kids yeah i think we'd be all right <laughs> if we see the world through kids eyes it's it's an amazing place yeah. when kids are young they used to draw and paint and scribble and you know, they used to do everything. But as they get older, what do we tell them? Right. Enough scribbling. Stop doodling. Now focus on your work. Yeah. That kid could be the next Picasso. That kid could be the next amazing architect. Yeah. But you are telling them, stop doodling. Stop looking out the window. Stop focus on your work. Yeah. Right. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. What we need is a variety of things to study at school. And I'm not saying maths and English are not correct because i honestly believe that they are correct they're they're one thing that we need to certainly do um but we need more than just biology chemistry physics and maths or history or geography we need i personally think we need a subject that is voluntary 
same as you get to pick subjects i think you should get to pick a subject that's to do with mother nature whether that's like something along the lines of environmental science or um eco tourism something along those lines that kind of just gets the kids saying okay i can make a living out of nature mother nature something to do with nature because if you're making a living out of it you tend to care more about it yeah. do you know if you are the head warden of a particular rspb reserve for example you take pride in it because if you make the place a mess and make everything into i don't know concrete jungle that is not in turn going to make the rspb viable for dragonflies let's mm-hmm. say but you take pride in making the place beautiful and wildlife friendly so then people start coming to you and more people means more money and money's money makes the world go round unfortunately it's a yeah. sad thing to think but we need to give people the opportunities to work in these industries work in the countryside work with mother nature and that's the tough thing internships are great but there needs to be an outcome and at the moment it's very very small numbers of people that are working in the countryside and i'm including farmers in this the number of people that actually work in the countryside compared to the people that work in the cities is vast mm-hmm. and that shouldn't be the case i really don't think it should be so if we get the next generation interested then wicked i think that that will do this world a massive favor um i think uh, yeah, I think I've just finished reading um, Robin Ince's um, new book, The Importance of Being Interested. And I actually, I, I managed to see him talk um, at the Norwich Science Festival as well. And he was saying that's something that sort of struck a chord with me that he was passionate about science and about all, you know, mm. when he was a kid. But as soon as he got to sort of senior school level, it was mm. sort of squashed out of him and it was yeah. sort of replaced with facts and drill, you know, like drilling facts into you and stuff. And yeah. they, they, you've lost the curiosity. I know several people who have teenagers who have just not, they're not choosing science for GCSE because they've lost mm. interest in it because of the way it's taught. And I yeah. think that's so sad. And you see a lot of people, I mean, myself included, um, I was following a very sort of theatrical, artistic um career path and all mm-hmm. of a sudden sort of something reignited my my love for sort of science nature conservation and yeah and I realized that I could do it and I realized it was for everyone and I think yeah, yeah you've really yeah that's a really important point that I, I think, think yeah the, the school system needs to change in the sense that for me at least it was more of you need to learn how to pass this test for you to succeed yeah it's parrot fashion we're going to tell you this we need you to regurgitate it on the exam and therefore you're clever. Yeah. Whereas in reality, that is not the case. If I didn't get diagnosed as dyslexic, I would be the dude at the school where everyone goes, oh yeah, what are you going to be, Hamza? Okay, well done. You know, well done for trying. Mm-hmm. They don't give you that chance. Whereas teachers, I was lucky enough to be in a school that's the the ratio of pupils to teachers was quite small and the teachers knew me personally and they were like Hamza you're always putting your hand up and answering the questions in class what happened on the test were you feeling ill were you feeling sick I'm like no I personally think I did pretty well in the exam Mm -hmm. well you failed and you haven't just failed one you failed majority of them so then one of the teachers was like I think he's dyslexic because he knows what he's talking about so it's a way of teaching that is different we need to stop doing exams as a judgment or a mark of 
if you're clever or not. Yeah. Because if I want to be a carpenter, for example, I don't need to know about what happened in algebra. Potentially, math is going to be a useful thing for you because you're going to need measurements and uh, angles and everything else. But there needs to be a slight recalibration of the educational system. Um, we need to include more things in there. And, you know, it's easy for me to say it because now I've done it, I've finished it, and I hardly ever get to pick up a pen in my life again, except if I'm signing something. Um, but I think it just needs to, we need to check and make sure that we're doing things correctly yeah. and for the interest of the future generations, really. I think we also have to dispel this myth that to to be a conservationist or to be you know a scientist you have to you have to have followed this linear path and gone to university and be a professor of xyz you don't yeah. that's that's not, that's not how it is you know having yeah. a passion is is you know yeah. internships there, i you? think are some of the best things ever because you're learning from someone who has been in that field has going to pass that knowledge down to you yeah that's really really great because Right. Let's be realistic. How many people have gone to university since the 1990s to now and they're not using that degree that they studied for? Right. Put your hand up. Yep. You're putting your hand up. And I can guarantee you <laughs> half my classmates that I went to university are doing nothing to do with zoology and conservation and animal behavior. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky enough to have. So clearly everyone's going into uni as uh, well, everyone's doing it. So why don't I? But that's not actually the need for it what you need to do is do what you want not what other people are doing and you don't have to follow a trend and I'm a big example of it I broke all trends and moved away from the city as such and went to the countryside and not just the countryside a remote place in the west coast of Scotland to follow my dream of becoming a wildlife cameraman mm -hmm. and you know it takes courage it takes persistence it takes stubbornness to some degree but if this is your dream follow it it's your life um there's no point doing someone else's idea if it's not yours so if you don't want to go into university but you actually want to do an apprentice job sweet because guess what as you're becoming an apprentice you're getting paid yeah. you're normally being paid for something that you are learning or studying and you can eventually in six years time be the manager at that company for example whereas if you're in university you've spent three years you're probably down 30 40 pounds you then go and do a master's which is god knows how much more and then you go into a phd and then you're stuck and i'm not saying that that's a bad thing i think it's great it's great to have people who are doing researchers uh phds and all that kind of stuff and teaching the people that want to go to university but i don't think we need to judge life by how successful you are in educational i've got nine degrees well done for you mm -hmm. what's your social life like you know mm -hmm. what i mean that, that i think that's an important thing yeah. having friends and family and people to lean on rather than just books and i'm not saying books are bad books are bloody great yeah. they are amazing i'm dyslexic i do a lot of audio books they're the best way forward i learn so much when i'm not really focusing but we just need to change up our lifestyles really absolutely well, I think to end, can mm. I just ask you if you I know it's I know it's like a, it's like asking someone, what's your favorite food? Um, what's your favorite color? <laughs> um, As you can see. <laughs> what is the, the most amazing animal 
or bird or that you've ever had the privilege to see? Because that oh, is me. I just want to know this. <laughs> oh, that's so difficult. Why? <laughs> Sorry. That, that, you see, tell me, will you ever do a marathon in your life? And I'm like, yeah, that's probably easier to answer. <laughs> this is more worth. for my five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I have three? Yes. Okay. Three. So mm, one of my favorite birds is a Eurasian starlin just because everyone underestimates it it's such a pretty bird and it's a mimic it's such a beautiful bird and god just yeah everyone sees them they kind of go oh yeah it's a starlin or it's like oh it's a duck but a starlin is a unique bird it's a clever bird the way they do their murmuration and the science behind that is just mind-boggling so starlins are very high up there on my list then the animal that i want to see the most and i've heard so much about it and probably my most favorite animal is a silverback gorilla Mm -hmm. just like look at that animal and really look at it and study it and see how a silverback organizes his family and how he protects his family and just the power that they have and the grace you know they're not just out there wanting to fight everybody they're like no far from it i'll take my family and leave then to get into a fight so i absolutely love silverback gorillas um i've only seen mountain lowland gorillas uh in captivity um and a distance but hopefully uh, I will get the chance soon to go out as a wildlife cameraman to go and film mm-hmm. them. Um, and then finally, penguins. Who doesn't love a penguin? I got the chance to go to the <laughs> Southern Ocean to go South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands. And these things are just amazing. They don't, they're not scared of humans because humans have never really affected them. Mm-hmm. They've never really persecuted them much. So after an absence of quite a while and we're going into them to study them they've not seen humans in seven eight years so they come up to you they waddle up to you to try and figure out what all your suitcases are filled with and all these colorful stuff so to me penguins are pretty high up there but starlings gorillas and penguins a big variety there even though as much as I love the eagles and the creepy crawlies yeah. and the, everything else and the giraffes and the rhinos. And yeah, that would be my top three animals at least. Well, that's amazing. And my five-year-old who I told you you're his biggest hero, oh, his favorite animal is a penguin. So well, he is just go. going to be <laughs> so happy that his hero loves penguins. So yeah, it's, been, it's been absolutely amazing. I've loved learning about the different eagles that we have in the UK that I never knew anything about. Um, and I've loved talking about sort of how we can get involved even in urban areas and, mm. you know, how nature is for everybody. But if you could just mm-hmm. say one one way one small difference that we could you know implement in our lives to sort of make a bigger change on the world what would it be walk more yeah get out and walk because a walk is so simple if you can walk do it get out there because you see things differently you see it better than you do in a car in a car it goes past at 30 miles an hour um you get to pick up tracks you get to sniff things you go out for a walk keep your eyes and ears open And as I say in my kids program, just enjoy it. Let's go for a walk. Keep your eyes and ears open. And next time you'll see something pretty cool. 
Well, it's been absolutely amazing and thank I'm you. very inspired. And thank you for having me. I want to give a huge thank you to you for taking the time to do this. Thank Cheers. You. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, what an absolutely incredible conversation. I've followed Hamza's work for a long time and I find his story and ambition absolutely inspirational. As I mentioned, Hamza is my son's hero and he is obsessed with the CBBS programme Let's Go For A Walk. The programme sees Hamza taking kids on walks around urban areas, exploring the diversity on offer in cities and towns. If you haven't seen it yet, have a look on the BBC iPlayer and I hope it will inspire you to get out and start opening your eyes to the beauty that surrounds us. In the next episode, we are diving back into the oceans to talk about another subject which has been heavily misrepresented in the media and popular culture for many years. The poet Robert Frost wrote, The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. We've got a lot of work to do, but together we can achieve amazing things. I'm Charlie, and this has been Mountain Conversations.